Would you open your Bibles with me uh, again to 1 Peter? Today we'll be in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Now, I mentioned last week that Peter is written broadly in three chunks. And the dividing line between them is the word beloved. And so today we actually see uh, verse 11 begins with the word beloved. King James will say dearly beloved. And then we have another one in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 12. But this is the beginning of the second section. So we've, we've finished uh, what, what you might call the doctrinal section of the book. The foundation, laying the foundation doctrinally for how we ought to live. And so uh, we're going to begin this section today um, broadly in two parts. I'll explain that later, though. So let's let's begin uh, in chapter two, verse 11. We'll pray and then we'll turn to the scripture. Father, your word is good. Your word is true. And so we come to you today asking that you would bless the reading and hearing of your word. Sanctify us by it. Prick our hearts and make us new. And Father, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, show us your will this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. In 1918, a sociologist by the name of Matt Weber wrote an essay called Science as Vocation, or Science as Calling. It was in German. Now, you may not know that name, Max Weber, but you do know his philosophy. Weber, is, he's the father of modern sociology. If you go to anthropology departments around the country and universities, Weber is a, is a, is a huge presence in those places. One of his, his main theories... And something that he was, he was famous for is this idea that secularization is inevitable. That religion is going to pass away, at least in its organized form, that we're going to have a perfectly secular society. We're on this unending march of progress toward getting rid of so-called fantasies like Christianity. It's interesting in his essay, he says that religion will not actually really die. It'll just die in its public form. Weber says that religion will continue in, in the life of the mind. Religion will continue in close personal relationships when we have this experience of God. Because true spirituality for Weber is private. It's something that's inside, not outside. Now, does that sound familiar? Our, our secular age likes to tell us that we can believe whatever we want as long as we keep it to ourselves. 
You can believe in Jesus, but don't talk about him. You can believe in Jesus, but don't you dare invoke his name in political debates or social debates. Don't you dare teach about him in schools. Don't you dare pray to him outside of your church building. You may not know the name Max Weber, but you do know his philosophy and the philosophy of those who like, like him. This philosophy that this is okay, what we're doing is okay as long as it stays in here. That's the philosophy of our world. But for Christians, that's not an option. We can't keep it in here. The Bible is very clear. The Christian life must be lived in public. The Christian life must be lived in public. Now, we're going to look at that today. This is going to be kind of an odd sermon because it's broadly in two sections. If I had a couple hours, I would preach all the way through chapter 4. Because Peter makes this broad statement in verses 11 and 12, and then he makes specific applications. Now, I don't think any of us really have time for that. <laughs> I don't know if I have the energy for that. So we're just going to focus on the broad statement and the first application today. The first, the broad statement, and then our, our first application is duty to civil authorities. So let's start by, by understanding the call to public Christianity. The call for our faith to move from private into public. Let's begin in verse 11. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify your God on the day of visitation. So Peter begins this section with two injunctions, two commands. Notice how they're based on the previous section. He says, as sojourners and exiles, number one, abstain from the passions of the flesh and then keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. He's gone into great detail, Peter has, about how we're not part of this world, explaining our relationship with fleshly powers, with earthly powers. He calls us wandering exiles. This is true of us not only externally, but internally. In fact, Peter makes a strong contrast between flesh and soul. This is an important biblical teaching that, that we need to get our heads around. Humans are both flesh and soul, both body and spirit. Now, modern scientific materialism neglects the soul. That's a problem you're probably familiar with. But Christians are actually often guilty of the opposite mistake, of neglecting the fact that our bodies are actually part of who we are. Thinking that we're only souls and that our bodies are mere vehicles. You've probably heard that kind of expressed at a funeral. How many times have you been at a funeral in front of someone's lifeless body and someone will say, that's not really her. She's gone. Now, there's a kernel of truth in that statement. But it misses a fundamental point about who we are as humans. There's a sense in which we can say that, that that's not really that person anymore. But there's a, another sense in which that lifeless body is the person that you love. Those are the hands that served you, the lips that kissed you, the mouth that spoke to you. Why do you think Thomas, the apostle, was so concerned with seeing the hands and feet of Jesus? It's because the physical is just as real as the spiritual. Humans are body and soul. But we also live in this odd in-between time. Our souls have been resurrected. Our souls have been rebirthed by the Holy Spirit. But our bodies are still sinful. Our bodies, our flesh, still needs resurrection. That's what Peter's getting at. The inner life the Holy Spirit has granted us, a life of holiness and freedom in our spirit, 
needs to take expression in our flesh. Our faith needs to move from our hearts into our hands. And maybe just as importantly, our, our faith needs to move from our heart to our minds. So for that reason, Peter gives two commands and one motivation for those commands. He says, abstain from passions of the flesh. Second, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And third, do these things that unbelievers may come to glorify God. Now, in naming these things, Peter is, is hitting on three different temptations that we're subject to. First, we're maybe tempted to indulge the flesh. This section, the second section of 1 Peter, is largely about outward obedience. But outward obedience matters very little if you've lost the war in your heart. The starting point of public Christianity, of Christianity lived out, is private Christianity. Is your inner faith. Now, when we talk about passions of the flesh, we tend to think about things like lust and gluttony and drunkenness. Those are true, but it goes deeper than that. In Galatians 5, Paul lists things like anger, jealousy, division, idolatry. See, Peter's on to something when he talks about war. The flesh represents all those things that stand against the things of God. Our temptation in the face of war is always to surrender. It's easy just to roll over, just to give in to the temptations of the flesh. But with the Holy Spirit's help, we're called to fight against those desires. To fight against the desires of the flesh. And to let our inner life of faith come through externally. So that's the first temptation, just to, just to indulge those passions. But the second temptation is to keep our faith private. Many people do pretty well to fight against the passions of the flesh. We do pretty well at avoiding lust and gluttony and things like that. But it's entirely another thing for that inner fight between our flesh and spirit to take expression outwardly. It's, it's easy to cloister off our faith into a little section of our lives, into a little box. It's very easy to say, I'll think about honoring God on Sunday or Maybe in my quiet times, if I'm really good, it's easy to, to say those things, but they're not true. You see, it's possible to feel really good about yourself, to examine yourself and think that you have pretty good motives, to think that you're self-controlled and disciplined, that you don't give in to your fleshly passions, but at the same time, you're giving in to a pressure to keep quiet. The danger is that Christ will become to you a personal philosophy instead of a personal God. Jesus is something that makes me feel good. Maybe he's got some good quotes that I can put on my Facebook page. But he doesn't affect my way of life in the world. I have a cross that I hang on my wall or a cross that I hang around my neck. But I'm otherwise unrecognizable as a Christian. Don't let that be you. If you're winning the war inside, then it should be expressed outside. If you're winning the war against the passions of the flesh, it should be expressed in public. So that's our second temptation, keeping the faith private. The third temptation is more insidious. Public obedience for the wrong reasons. 20 or 30 years ago, people would join churches for social or economic reasons. If you wanted to be a respectable member of the community, if you were a business owner and you wanted people to patronize your business, 
Then you would just go join the local kind of big steeple church. You'd be nice and give on occasion, and that would be good enough. That still happens some, but more commonly, people come to Christianity for other reasons. Some people come for political reasons. Politicians are smart. They realize that Bible-believing Christians vote for Bible-believing Christians. So they'll join a church and invoke the name of Jesus, and they'll go out on the campaign trail and act as if they're Christians there. Other people understand that they can get famous. They can become popular among certain groups for bombastic displays of religiosity. If, if I want to be popular on Twitter, I know how to do that. Just say the right things. We get the likes, we get the retweets. Maybe more of us commit to the faith for even more mundane reasons. Do you want to impress your in-laws? Maybe you're trying to convince yourself that you're a good person. And Christianity is a way to convince yourself of that. Now, all these motivations have differing degrees of legitimacy. But if any of those are our main focus, we're missing the point. Our primary aim in following Christ is not to build ourselves up. That will actually happen. You'll be built up by following Christ. But that's a side effect of our main goal. Our sanctification and our joy is a side effect of God's glory. When we understand who God is, that he deserves the highest honor, that he deserves the highest praise, we can't help but place our focus on him. And when we do that, our obedience is actually strengthened. No other motivation has the sustaining power that God's glory does. Your personal aspirations will fail you. But you have a steadfast God that will not. So set your eyes on his glory and his purposes. And don't give in to temptation to live as a Christian for the wrong reasons. So those are the three temptations to guard against. And that's, that's part one of the sermon. And I don't, don't want you to forget that. Because it comes into play in each of these applications. Verses 11 and 12 frame the entirety of, the, of each of these applications in the next couple of chapters. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to turn to Peter's first application of those principles. The first application of what it means to abstain from the passions of the flesh, to, to wage that war, and to live Christianly in public for God's glory. He says, be subject to civil authority. Look at verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as a people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So Peter tells us, Peter says, be subject to every human institution. Now, interestingly, that word there is an active word. Hupatasso is the, the word for be subject. It's voluntary submission. And, and Peter makes clear that we are free. But he actually calls us to do something with our freedom, to, to come before these authorities and be subject. This is guarding against the first two temptations. Our flesh naturally wants to rebel against authority. But we can't do that. But we also can't just disengage from civil authority. Peter calls us to active submission, to active 
participation in the world. But what he really keys in on is keys in on in these verses is our motivation. Why are we to be subject to the civil authorities, to every human institution? Well, Peter frames that obedience to civil authorities in terms of obedience to God. The primary motivation, according to Peter, for submitting to the civil authorities is that they are anointed by God. Now, I don't think that's an easy pill to swallow for most people. We don't live in a world that that has perfect leaders. In fact, oftentimes our leaders are pretty bad. But that's what the Bible tells us. These people, even the bad ones, are ordained by God. In fact, we know that God has ordained all things for his glory. So when we submit to the civil authorities, we're not doing it for their sake. We're doing it in submission to God. Understanding that his providence governs all of their steps. You know, interestingly, in the Roman Empire, there was this general policy of religious toleration. Now, it wasn't anything like today. Uh, We have a shocking amount of religious freedom in the United States, even though it doesn't always feel like it. But Christianity was, in theory, legal. At the same time, there was serious persecution by the Roman authorities. So what did the Romans charge Christians with? They charged them with treason. They argued that Christians were seditionists, trying to overthrow the empire. Now, we know that that was patently false. There was no aspiration for the church to overthrow the government. But this is the kind of thing that Peter intends to guard against. There's something important for us to learn here. For many Christians, the knee-jerk reaction to cultural lunacy, much like the world we live in now, is to get into a brawl. Now, I can certainly appreciate that feeling. I've been there. I've felt that. But Peter urges wisdom here. He reminds us that often what that kind of thing does is stir up the world against us. They're already against us because of Christ. We don't need to give them more reasons. It is, it is enough to be ashamed to, to be shamed in the world for your obedience to Christ. It is enough for your Christianity to be the reason that you are persecuted. We don't need to give them more reasons. Instead, the way forward is to be the absolute best citizens we can be. Now, that's hard. <laughs> and you may say, well, Peter says... That these authorities are sent to punish evil and reward good. But they don't do that. And I would say that you're right. By and large, our government does the exact opposite. They reward evil and punish good. In fact, it's very rare for civil authorities to actually carry out their mandate in purity. And here again, we need to trust God's providence. Of course, we must obey God first. The law of the land contradicts scripture. We're called to obey God. But as John Calvin reminds us, even the worst tyrannies, there's a semblance of order. Whether they realize it or not, bad leaders are being used by God for his purposes. Even their sin and evil has an ultimate purpose in God's economy. Remember, Joseph told his brothers at the end of Genesis, 
You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, I'm not advocating for just rolling over. I'm not saying that you should say nothing, that you should be disengaged. No, you should be engaged. When the world is against you, when, when the government is, is persecuting you, when the authorities in this world are, are doing things that are evil, you should vote. You should be involved. You should say something. You should write letters, call your senator. But understand that all of that is under God's divine providence. Do you want to silence the ignorance of foolish people? Do you want to silence the ignorance of pagans? The answer is not to drown them out. The answer is to follow Jesus, who though oppressed and afflicted, opened not his mouth. Now, Jesus did not admit fault. Jesus did not uh, bend down to the authorities in a way that was um, false. But he simply stood his ground. It is a fact that you are free, that you are exiles from this world, that you don't belong here. And in that sense, the powers of this world have no authority over us. At the same time, we are servants of God, literally slaves of God. And he calls us to bring heaven to earth, to be heaven on earth, to make his kingdom known on the earth. And therefore, we should live in a way worthy of our mediator, Jesus Christ. Peter sums up with this in verse 17. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Excuse me, verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Here we have the heart of the matter. Four simple commands. In order, we see how this all fits together. You have different obligations to the world, to the church, and to God. Each deserves its proper place in your heart. You may be an exile on this earth, but you are called to honor those you live among. And that includes the emperor, or the president, or the governor, or whoever is over you. This is hard, but you need to understand that that actually follows from your deeper obligations. Honor everyone because God is to be feared. Honor everyone because they're made in the image of this God, who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing, and he calls you to that task. Honor everyone, honor the emperor, because he may very well be called himself into the brotherhood of believers. He may belong to Christ. Is this difficult? Yes. But remember the ultimate purpose. We're to put away the passions of the flesh, keeping our conduct pure, that the world may see our good deeds and glorify God. This is what God calls you to do. It's not easy. But he empowers you for the task. To be a light to the world. To bring heaven to earth. To make your exile fruitful. This is what the Holy Spirit calls you to. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.